This afternoon I'm going to give some broader context for why we're putting so much attention on the Satipatthana Sutta. And the word sutta, if you're not familiar with it, means uh, often translated it into English means discourse or a talk that the Buddha gave. And sometimes if you're in more religious circles, they call them sermons, but um, I've never been comfortable with that. So the Satipatthana discourse, or the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, and it's often called the four foundations of mindfulness. Then we'll have a chance to explore it as a group and um, um, bit by bit unpack this discourse. So this is the first presentation on the discourse itself. So the, um, if you know the story of the Buddha's life, you'll know that he was a prince for uh, 29 years. Can you hear me over there? Okay. Over the whir of the psalm colors? Okay. And then he left his kingdom and he wandered for close to six years and he was driven by a very strong question of how to overcome the cycles of birth and death and how to free himself and people that he cared for from the process that he looked around and saw humans could have good experiences, but those good experiences couldn't be sustained. And when he finally woke up to that, he had a very deep insight when he was a prince that even given his wealth and all of his opportunity, he himself would have to suffer the loss of his parents, the loss of his own youth, um, that the children he was about to have with his wife, this one child who was going to grow up and experience pain and suffering, and that nobody had figured a way out of suffering. And most people just knew to keep suffering as far away from themselves as possible until they couldn't do that any longer and then they would experience the suffering. So he went out on a long journey, and he uh, worked with many spiritual traditions and many different trainings uh, that were available at his time in India. It actually was a very rich, it's almost like the Bay Area of the time where he grew up. There's tons and tons of spiritual traditions, and everybody um, professing their own particular type of healing and their own truth as they saw it from what healing looked like from their tradition. And many even proclaimed they had found the way, they had found the truth. And so he practiced in many of these communities and found that they were somewhat alleviating, but they hadn't gotten to the core of what he wanted to experience, the freedom he was looking for. So then he spent uh, a better part of his wandering, six years, in a school that believed that if you um, could endure enough pain, some part of you would finally give up fighting pain. And some part of you would stop craving pleasure if you could so marry your experience with suffering that you would, um, it's almost like starving something of oxygen, starving a fire of oxygen. If you could just starve the, exp- the, the being of pleasure, marry it to pain, something would break and you could break open this relationship to suffering. So rather than running from it, as you might think he did as a prince with all of his affluence, 
he tried deeply submerging himself in the experience of as much pain as he could summon up to see if he could crack this egoic um, fear of pain, desire to pull back from pain. And <clears throat> we're lucky that that wasn't the solution. Because <laughs> either we couldn't do it, or if we could, it would be quite a path. And what he found was that um, marrying pain or running from pain does nothing to actually change the underlying relationship to pain. And it doesn't get you out past the suffering that comes when you naturally feel pain. And so he had a, uh, some intuitions, followed his own intuitions finally, and had a great awakening under the Bodhi tree in northern India about 2,600 years ago. And that story of his awakening is quite beautiful, how it un- unfolded for him. But then he began, <clears throat> as, after his awakening, he began teaching, and he tried to find people who could understand um, what it was that he understood about awakening and tried to articulate a path that many people could follow and find themselves increasingly free of their own suffering and anguish, and many of them following that to its ultimate goal of being completely free of mental suffering in the face of pain, in the face of pleasure being temporary. And so he articulated a path. And so he uh, taught his first five students and described what he called the middle way. And the middle way was the Eightfold Path, where you neither chase pleasures nor flee from pain, but train in a way that you can untangle our, our um, deeper confusion around the nature of pain, the running from it or the embracing of it, something more in the middle way. And then he taught for um, over 40 years, and he walked through northern India on foot, teaching anybody who was interested, sometimes having intuition that he could walk a long distance and find a group of people and they would be interested, and they'd be able to make some uh, headway through his teachings. And he taught for 45 years, let's say, And in many different communities. And back then, they didn't have um, a homogenous culture. Every valley you went to, people would probably just stay in that valley, most of them, their whole lives. And maybe they would trade with the next valley over. But most people stayed put. So when he wandered across northern India, he wandered through many different cultures. I'm not sure if you've ever traveled in, um, in a country like England. But there's actually, each little valley has a slightly different uh, accent of English because people stay put and they develop local idioms. So he wandered through all these different uh, subcultures and taught the way he could in those communities. And at one point he said, after many, many decades of teaching, he said, no matter what I teach, no matter where I go, I'm only teaching on one topic. Everything that I say, every guidance I offer it boils down to this one topic. What is the nature of suffering? And what is the end of suffering? Which you could claim as two topics. But it goes under one umbrella. Suffering, the nature of suffering, and the alleviation of suffering. 
So that was the big uh, umbrella of which everything that he has said, everything that was recorded that he said, is on that topic. What is the nature of suffering and what is the end of that suffering? How to train yourself to the end of that suffering. If you take this one topic and you can see it's two parts, and you split both those two parts into two parts, you now have four parts. And this becomes the Four Noble Truths, which is also considered the big um, overarching orientation to everything that he taught. So you take those two truths, suffering and the end of suffering, and you get a little more detailed, and suddenly it's almost like um, cell division. You start with one cell, and you can see it split into two, and then those two split into four. So the Four Noble Truths are a deep understanding that no matter what happens when you're born all the way to when you uh, finally die, there is no way to live a life where you won't encounter some pain. Most people are trying their best to live a life where they can reduce the pain that they're encountering. Most people don't seek out pain. And what he says in that first truth is that there's some amount of pain that is inherent in being alive. But there's also an extra amount of suffering and pain, and that is optional. And that comes into the second noble truth. What is the nature of this suffering, this pain? And the Pali word for that is dukkha. So what is the nature of this dukkha, this pain, this suffering that we have to encounter? And he comes to the second noble truth, which says that craving, this yearning, this discontent with what is now, and the yearning for what you project could be, that's what sets you up suffering so much and being discontent. This deep yearning to be happy some other time, some other place. The inability to meet life as it is and craving for something else whether it's craving a better relationship, a healthier body, a larger income, a different family of origin, (laughs) which is not possible. Um, This underlying craving that feels like it's you yearning for your own happiness is actually setting you up to struggle with life as it is. And so the Pali word for that craving is called tanha. So the first noble truth suffering, uh, dukkha, has its genesis in tanha, craving. And craving is not the word desire in English. Some desires have that craving built into them. But craving is a strain in relationship to what you have for what you don't have. That is this craving that comes over all of us, and we, we get taken up by it, and we think that that's where I'm going to find my happiness somewhere else, some other time. The middle way is learning to find contentment while going through experiences that that are already occurring and you can make wise choices within that, but you actually have to untangle this habit of craving, craving what you don't have. And it's flip side being averse to what you do have. If at any point you have a question that would help you tune into what's being said. Because the room's small enough, we can actually have this also be a bit of a dialogue. So I'm happy to keep 
going on, but if I can help you tune in, yeah. Tanha. The second word is Tanha, T-A-N-H-A. And it's um, closer to our English word, thirst. So it's a, a sense of there's something wrong in the present and my solution is elsewhere. You're thirsting after something. And it's different than the experience of having um, a passion or an aspiration if I love the moment I'm in and I'm inspired for a future moment, that's not the same type of thirst. You might have a, a passion for the future, yet still find that you can meet the present. It's when you begin to have a strained relationship to the present, a dissatisfied, tumultuous relationship to the present, and then your mind begins to fixate on some other time or place or cannot actually meet what's happening in the present, you find that there's no satisfaction possible in this moment because of what's happening, and therefore my happiness has to be elsewhere. That's tanha. Yeah. I think that addressed that. Yeah. So that's important for us to understand, and I'll get to that question, that as we get good and we really feel into it, there was a time when I was in college and I was first getting into Buddhism. And back then, we weren't as, as sophisticated around this. And so somebody accidentally said, all desires are craving because they're all about the future. And I remember sitting as a, as a junior in college and my friends wanted to go out dancing. And I was like, uh-oh, I want to go dancing. That means I'm not okay with staying home. <laughs> Therefore, if I go dancing with my friends, I'm participating in delusion. So I can't go dancing. I have to stay home. And <clears throat> it was, so I learned what that excessiveness looked like. And it didn't seem right to me, but I didn't have a teacher to ask at the time, and I was kind of trying my best to understand it. But there's room for beautiful aspirations. The, the Buddhist desire to teach was not sort of a casual affair. He had to walk 30 days in the hot Indian summer. It was May um, before the monsoons. And he walked barefoot in the heat to find his first five students. There is room for passion, but you know if you actually are dropped into the moment and the moment becomes full of an aspiration and then you begin letting that aspiration be part of what draws you forward, but it, it does not negate the present, then you're not following into tanha. And there's room for actually purifying our hearts and our minds and our bodies so much that beautiful aspirations begin to flow through us. They don't criticize, reject um, the present. And the nice thing about that is that if you find your aspiration runs into a barrier, then you're not disappointed because it wasn't about being attached or fixated on your goal wasn't about rejecting the present, you find yourself at a place where you pause and then maybe your aspiration wants you to go in a new direction. I once tried to take my father out to dinner to his favorite restaurant, we got to the door and it was closed. Beautiful aspiration. If I had been fixated, I would have really been stuck and frustrated and just sort of cursed under my breath. But I wanted to spend the night with him and so we thought of another place to go. Simple example. But the aspiration didn't cr cause a strain in my relationship to reality. Yet it did give fuel 
to create a future and to put some energy into that. So if you, if you have an open, beautiful relationship to your heart and your passions, and they're not cultivating this strain in relationship to the reality you're in, there's plenty of room for this. And so we use language like aspiration to notice, to uh, delineate the beautiful part of the heart that can have aspirations, and even passionate aspirations. And what you want to scan for is this tanha, the dissatisfaction with the present, and that being something you can't meet. So pain in my body, I can meet it. I'm inspired to alleviate it. I'm not acting out of tanha. Pain in my body and I can't meet it, and it's frustrating me, so I have to move. Okay, I had to move that time. It was partially motivated by tanha. That's why we like to meet our experiences first before we begin to shift them in a new direction so that we're reducing the amount of tanha that's driving us. I like to use these uh, Pali words because I think that if you spend time with Pali a little bit, that word can stand perfectly for what you want it to stand for. But if you start using English, then we have so many connotations with certain English words that can actually be a little baffling. So this tanha, this thirst, there's somewhere in it is an inability to meet the present, your memories of the past, what you fear about the future, hope for the future. Yeah, as we work with, as we work with our actual lives and become more um, capable of feeling our actual, actual lives, less driven by compulsion, then we might find these many layers and, they, and they're they're intricate. And often, what happens with with more mindfulness, you can actually feel what's happening, and you can then begin to sort out what's the beautiful compassion, what's the impatience. How much of the impatience is actually courage to do something different and how much of it is an inability to meet the present. And if you go to some of the more complicated areas of your life, it'll be harder to, it might be hard to see how this actually functions because it starts to get very intricate. But it tends to get, some of these complicated areas of our life are, they have so many things passing through them that it's interesting to try to go right to what's most complicated, where we're suffering the most, and see if you can actually distill it all down to craving. But this has actually stood up over time. The great thing about, uh, that I love about Buddhism is that you start with some theory, but the theory is meant to be investigated. And now many cultures that have not been brought up with this theory have started with the theory and then done the scientific investigation and found that the unhelpful part of the complicated relationship I have with my parents 
can actually, I can see the tanha is what's actually making me struggle with the realities of my life. So that's what I'm going into some detail because this is having this understanding is why this discourse is so powerful because it walks straight through our complications and untangles uh, places where we're often unconscious or not as conscious as we need to be in order to um, alleviate these unconscious habits of craving. Yeah, desire is okay. And what you might want to heighten is that <clears throat> desire can be like the first potato chip. Not that fattening, kind of tasty, gives a lift to the mind. But then you've opened the bag. And then you've actually now opened, that did taste good, and there's more in that bag. So sometimes not being mindful of your first desires you then stepped into something where you then cross over into craving. You've awoken something. So we want to heighten our mindfulness around our desires to make sure that they're not that first potato chip leading into a whole bag of uh, very complicated urges. Yeah. And so the idea of never having a potato chip, never opening the bag, that's sort of the monastic renunciation approach. No potato chips ever. And then you don't have to worry about wrestling with the desires that come up. But then you find them. You find them. I, I had a, um, when I was a monk, I, had a, I was given robes. Very generous people gave me robes. And I saw this monk walk by, and the, the maroon color of his robes, I was like, oh, my God, that's... It's so beautiful. So there was some desire. Like, I, I am fine with my robes, but those are some pretty fine robes on that monk over there. And then the mind just started like, doo, 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 and I was like, yeah. And then there was this, this, this moment of dissatisfaction. I was fine with my robes. Then in contrast, I was like, I wouldn't mind somebody giving me those robes. I wonder how I can get those robes. And then there was a fixation and so that was the first potato chip was an unguarded, oh, I, I like that. And then not letting it go. I like that. And there it goes. I like that and I want that. And now I need it. Now I'm actually dissatisfied with the robes I have. But yes, yesterday I wasn't. So it's not inherent in the robes. My mind has gone through a shift in relationship to it. That, those are subtle examples. We could flip it forward to something really much more difficult. And a hedonist. Well, I've been around some people who have taken hedonism as their awakening path. And what happens around, there's unconscious hedonism and there's conscious hedonism. Conscious hedonism, the suffering is so incredible that if you don't wake up around, you only get sucked into uh, this bottomless yearning. Conscious hedonism, people try to be present 
with their desires, they notice that they wake up a little bit, the world is a little bit bright, and then you just have to be very careful. You've now opened the bag of potato chips. Can you take one at a time? And where's the mind? Now you're into shades of gray versus something was heavy contrast. How do you then deal with pleasure? Well, it was great the first time, but now I'm actually starting to crave it. Shouldn't I have done it the first time? Or do I have to learn about this animal body that then locks into what it wants? And the craving sometimes feels very um, deeper in my DNA. It's more of my kind of lizard being inside that locks into what it wants and doesn't want. And so conscious hedonism, um, you actually have to work very hard to have that much uh, interaction with pleasure and not have it collapse into a lot of craving. That's, And we would say that actually as lay people, the Burmese monks, Thai monks, look at us trying to be consciously hedonistic, even though we're kind of, you know, they would say our clothing and our temperature-controlled houses and cars that we have are not, and the food we have access to. Many of us lay people are trying some type of conscious hedonism, just not letting it go crazy. And then there are people in San Francisco <laughs> that I know are um, really exploring, and also here in Marin, I'll put Marin on the same plate, um, how much pleasure can you seek before you get completely uh, entangled in it? The Buddha was a monastic, and he built a monastic community. And he also taught lay people. But when he was teaching monastics, he could be much more, there was a much harder contrast between desire um, and then how quickly that might lead into subtle or profound types of craving. The sermon? Discernment. Discernment, yes. Discernment. Yeah, and we'll see as we go through this discourse why it is the direct way as we become intimately connected in these places where craving is often born. Craving and then deeper forms of clinging and attachment and suffering. And this is the direct path through these four areas where uh, craving and suffering are born. So the first two truths, that we have to mature our relationship to some of the difficulties of life, that all pleasures are temporary, all pain is temporary too, but it can't be avoided. The suffering that we create in relationship to this first noble truth has a cause. That's the second noble truth, the truth that our suffering is generated by this craving, tanha. So remember the big map, we have one teaching, which was two, two teachings, which become four. He taught about suffering and the end of suffering. The next two truths of the four noble truths are that craving can be extinguished to its end. There's a lot of beautiful liberation as we reduce the way that craving drives us. So there's a lot of liberating moments along the way but there is a way to bring craving to a complete zero and still have a functioning life. Craving is not necessary to live on the planet. And there actually is a way to not only reduce it, but to zero our craving out. 
when I was younger, when there was a lot more craving in me, I couldn't imagine zeroing out my craving and still knowing how to get out of bed in the morning, still knowing how to put food in my mouth. Like, it just wasn't possible. And then I went on my first silent meditation retreat, and I thought, oh, maybe this is possible. But then I have to live on a silent meditation retreat forever, because once I leave that, it just gets chaotic again. And that was some of my many motivations of becoming a monastic, is hoping that that would be my way of zeroing out craving. That's not necessary. That's one way. There is a way to untangle, zero out this tanha, this urge of dissatisfaction in us. That's the third noble truth. It can be reduced and it can be brought to zero. And the way to do that is the fourth noble truth, the path that leads to the end of this suffering by ending uh, and uprooting craving, ending uprooting tanha. So we start walking and learning about all the various ways that we can develop ourselves so that we don't suffer the first noble truth by reducing and finally uprooting tanha of the second noble truth. How, how how do you create suffering to avoid so If it's actually done out of love, that could be a pretty powerful message. 
But if it's driven by the fact that I can't stand it when I see my family do these things, so now I'm going, I'm going to send this, and if I don't send it, I can't stand what's happening. So I have this tanha, this thirst. Reality is deficient, and I need to rush in and change it. Whenever I send an email that's got tanha dripping off, all dripping off every letter, the blowback is fierce. So I'm trying to construct happiness, and I end up constructing my own suffering. That's not the place I usually look to clean up my email. But if I do start to look at tanha and how much it's bent certain phrases and punctuated certain words, I can see that that's actually where the suffering reverberation that I'm participating in is going to keep rolling because often what I got was a tanha-laced email and then we're all just passing the tanha and the suffering around. When I zero myself out and start participating and communicating with my family or somebody else does that, we start finding our way back up to the surface, back up to more perspective and more forgiving. So hunting for the tanha, hunting for this craving that promises liberation and happiness, but it's the very uh, genesis of why there's more suffering is an important thing to hunt for. So that's the big view of the Four Noble Truths as an articulation of everything the Buddha said for his 40 years, walking through all these many communities through northern India, many different political systems, many different kingdoms, um, everyone being navigated through with this basic theme that he found as many creative ways as he could to teach as many people as possible these Four Noble Truths. Suffering and what suffering is like, that it can be found as the primary cause is tanha, this craving, that it can be reduced and then actually finally zeroed out, and that there is a path, there's a very strong, clear path of training to reduce the tanha, therefore reducing the suffering, to straighten out one's heart and one's mind, and then out of that comes the suffering patterns. And that's what we train in, the Eightfold Path. You need to understand the Four Noble Truths to some degree to understand why we're using the elements of the Eightfold Path. So it has this number eight. It's its own uh, teaching. And I might um, completely spend your intellect going into the Eightfold Path. But often it's talked about in these three trainings. One is developing wisdom and understanding. So if you've had any type of intuition that, oh, maybe, Tanha, yeah, maybe that's what's going on here about this suffering, that's your own tuning into the part of the Eightfold Path that's developing insight and perspective and wisdom. There's a straightening out our ethical behavior so that we're not causing harm. That's another part of the Eightfold Path is our ethical attunement, our ethical development. But the very deeply transformative part of the Eightfold Path is the meditative component because that meditative component allows us to break old habits and develop new ones internally so we actually can start making a string of different decisions 
we can see more clearly. We have the, the possibility of interfering with old habits. And then in that gap between an old habit ending, feeling something, seeing what's happening, new creativity comes in, you see a new possibility where before there was just an old habit, an old compulsion. That's the training of the Eightfold Path and why mindfulness is a crucial part of the Eightfold Path. It's one of the eight factors. And developing mindfulness is what the Satipatthana Sutta is. And why it's structured the way it is, is meant to challenge the second noble truth of suffering, its cause. That's why it's built the way it is. So when we get into that, that's something you have to keep in mind. Why these four foundations? Why the various reflections and practices? Why are we laboring on this? Because we're actually trying to get root, we're trying to root out of our garden this tenacious weed of craving. We're trying to get it out so that our hearts can actually be beautiful and passionate in the world, but then not corrupted by this force of tanha. Let's uh, pause that file and make a new one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.